all of our readings today are from Matthew chapter 27, which is on page 998 in the Church Bibles. And we'll begin reading from verse 11. Jesus before Pilate. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead <coughs> an uproar, was starting. He took water <coughs> and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Before we see the cross as something done for us, leading to worship and faith, we have to see it as something done by us leading to repentance. 
the words of John Stott. And as we go to Jerusalem in our minds and our hearts this afternoon, we first see Jesus before the Roman governor, Pilate, accused by the Jewish chief priests and elders. And we're all complicit, all of us, in their shameful rejection of the Son of God. Now, crucifixion uh, is not something that is in Jewish law. In fact, only the Roman governor could approve of a capital sentence. And in Roman law, if you give no defense, and you do that three times, it is assumed that, not that you're innocent, it is assumed that you're guilty. And uh, uh, Jesus says nothing to the Jews. He says nothing to Pilate. And we see here in verse 14, uh, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate sits there amazed that this man is refusing to say anything because he knows that as Jesus refuses to answer the charges and defend himself, he is signing his own death warrant. Jesus, you say nothing. We have to assume that you're guilty. Now, Pilate's in a very difficult position. We often, don't we, portray him as uh, the spineless governor looking for an easy way out. He's in a very difficult position. Verse 19, his wife uh, uh, makes it even a more difficult position. But he was, he's in a difficult place, even before his, his wife has this uh, terrible night. He's accountable to the emperor Tiberius. And Tiberius had a reputation of having no mercy on any of his governors who condoned treason. And for Jesus, this charge, king of the Jews, is effectively a charge of treason. But then on the other hand, the emperor Tiberius also had a reputation of taking a very strong line against any of his governors who uh, treated their subjects badly. And so Pilate has a very difficult tightrope to walk here. He's got a prisoner. On the one hand, he's got a prisoner who he believes to be innocent, and yet who's making no defense. So he thinks and he's, he's concerned that the Roman law, therefore, is going to show him as guilty. And then on the other hand, you've got a crowd baying for this prisoner's blood. What would you have done if you had been in Pilate's position? Well, there's a custom, and possibly this custom is going to give him a way out. It's in verse 15 there. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Now, this is not mentioned anywhere outside the four Gospels. Uh, but Pilate has four prisoners on that day, doesn't he? He has Jesus, he has Barabbas, and he has the two who were eventually crucified either side of Jesus. Barabbas, in Mark's Gospel, he's called a murderer. Luke and John record the fact he had taken part in an insurrection. Matthew, in verse 16, says he's a well-known prisoner. And uh, uh, here we have Pilate, and he's desperately hoping that the crowds are going to be saying, release Jesus. 
That would be the right, that would be the just thing to do. But we look at verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Crowd manipulation at its seedy and appalling worst. And did Pilate misjudge the crowd? Certainly he had to avoid a riot at the Passover time, the Jewish festival. The place was just heaving with people, a national fervor. And uh, you certainly wouldn't want to stoke the fires of that. And then in the end we see here, the end of verse 23, they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And then Pilate washes his hands in verse 24, a Jewish custom to say, I'm innocent. It's your responsibility. It's your fault. And then it says here, he released Barabbas to them. That means Barabbas joins the baying mob. And he had Jesus flogged, which could alone be fatal. The Jews said no more than 39 lashes. Who knows if the Romans kept to that limit. And then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As I was preparing this, I was quite struck by that phrase, handed him over. There's quite a lot of handing over in Matthew's gospel, much more than the other gospels. There's only one other place in the New Testament where that phrase comes. Judas handed Jesus over, chapter 26, verse 46. Uh, The chief priests handed Jesus over, chapter 27, verse 2. There are various other references, uh, chapter 27, verse 18 and 26, uh, and so on. But, you know, I think the telling one is in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 20. And Paul is writing of uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says this, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And you see, in each of those cases, the handing over is a handing over for judgment. And as Pilate hands Jesus over, Jesus is actually being handed over for judgment as he bore the suffering for our sin. Does Jesus deliberately, willingly, knowingly allows himself to be handed over for judgment in place of Barabbas, taking Barabbas's place, taking our place? You see here, Barabbas is a picture of you and me picture of us, guilty and condemned, with Jesus taking our place so that we could be pronounced not guilty, so that we could be pronounced free, just like Barabbas. John Stott again said this, the essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation 
is God substituting himself for us. Let's be quiet and ponder these things. So verse 27 of Matthew chapter 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, And the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is simply barbaric. Verse 27 there, the, uh, the praetorium, the governor's official residence. Pilate actually lived in Caesarea up on the coast. We don't know exactly which building this was in Jerusalem. 
Uh, but all the soldiers are brought out, probably several hundred of them. And they were probably largely non-Roman soldiers. Uh, they were probably non-Jewish locals recruited by Pilate. And here, they have a rare chance to indulge their hatred of the Jews. And Jesus has made a kind of pretend emperor with a robe, probably one of the soldiers' robes, a red robe that they would wear, uh, probably faded by the sun, a crown of thorns, a staff, possibly a reed. And the crown was uh, quite possibly the uh, canthus plant, big, long thorns on it. And we don't know whether they arranged it with the, with the thorns pointing downwards, so you'd have to you know, give as much pain as possible, or perhaps with the thorns pointing upwards to make it as mocking as possible, to look like a, a crown, or maybe both. And uh, we see here the ridicule and the rejection. I mean, they should be honoring Jesus. Instead, it is ridicule. You look at verse 29, 30, 31. It was Cicero who said to, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to kill him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And there's very little in the Bible to describe the physical torment of a crucifixion. Everyone knew it in those days. It was just a hideous way, the worst way to die. I mean, we know in the media at the moment, for instance, over there's a debate going on in the States. When they execute someone by lethal injection in the States, they use three different drugs. There's quite a debate as to uh, which uh, is the best way of, of doing that, the most humane way of doing that. But no drugs at all for Jesus. In verse 34, it was a painkiller of sorts, but not for Jesus. And he was crucified entirely conscious until the end and racked with agony. And there's no mercy from the soldiers. Um, verse 32, it says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and forced him to carry the cross. Most likely just the, the cross beam, the particulum. And uh, that was like a railway sleeper. It was hugely heavy, 300 pounds or so, maybe more. And very few could carry that after a flogging. And then they take him up to uh, crucify him. And contrary to the paintings we see, it is most likely that Jesus was crucified naked. The most shameful state for anyone from the Middle East still is today. And then when you're crucified, you can't control your bodily functions. It gets hideously worse, doesn't it? The whole thing's perfectly hideous. And then there's, there's ridicule piled onto the shame. You look in verse 35, and Jesus, he's conscious at that state. He's seeing them dividing up his clothes by casting lots, gambling. 
the cloth which guarded his modesty, gambled for. And the passers-by hurl insults at him. Look at verses 39 and 40. And the religious leaders hurl insults at him. Look at verses 41 and 2 and 3. And then those criminals who were crucified with him hurled insults at him. Verse 44 there. Everyone's having a go. But uh, glance back to verse 42. And they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. And that is deeply ironic, isn't it? That actually he won't save himself so that he can save others, so that he can save you and me. And when you look at the end of verse 42, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. But if he had, would you? If he had, would they have believed in him? And would you really believe in him? What kind of a God would he be if he'd come down from the cross? And what would be the benefit of believing in him? There would be no salvation. And what kind of a God would it be who came down and therefore forced you to believe in him? What kind of an existence would that give you? No. No, no, Jesus won't come down from the cross. He will not come down. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And of course the truth is, Jesus won't save himself. He says he will save others. He won't save himself. He says he will save you and me. And Jesus endured the ridicule, the ridicule from the passers-by, the ridicule, the insults from the religious leaders, the ridicule, the insults from those who were crucified with him. He endured a crucifixion. And before that, it was a flogging of utter brutality so that he, the Son of God, may voluntarily lay down his life for you and for me. And what does he want us to do? Well, we see in verse 42, it's this irony again, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And you see, that is exactly what he wants us to do. It's exactly why he stays there that we might believe in him, that we may put our trust in him, that as he stayed there on the cross, he was bearing our sin, that we may be there with him in glory for all eternity. So he, the dying son of God, ridiculed and rejected, sacrificed for us that we may believe 
in him. Now, verse 45 of Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. got dark about midday and cold visual aid for the whole world of something momentous cosmic something to do with evil was happening outside Jerusalem on a Roman cross and around about three o'clock Jesus cries out there Eli, Eli, Lama Samachtari not Abba any longer, Daddy. Not even Father, but a distant, formal, my God. A cry which chills the bones as we recognize that that is an exact and precise description of what is happening. That God the Father is turning away from his Son 
that God the Father is turning his back on his own son and pouring his wrath on Jesus as he became our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dying for our sin that Good Friday afternoon. And that cry tells us what was going on. And if we think it all ends in a hideous defeat, then do read the rest of Psalm 22, maybe in the final period of, period of quiet. And for instance, verses 22 to 24 there of Psalm 22, where it says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, and so on. It is. It ends in a psalm, a cry of triumph. So there is the cutting off of the son, abandoned by his father. But we also see a great and a wonderful triumph. And so we come to the moment of Jesus' death. In verse 48, they could be trying to uh, bring him round, bring him back to consciousness, back to the agony. And there's that rebuke there in verse 49. And then in verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, now that's unusual at the end of a crucifixion. That's very unusual. Jesus dies. Bruce Milner has described it like this. Thus Jesus dies. He who was from all eternity dies. The eternal word through whom all things were made, including life itself, dies. He who raised the dead, who at the tomb of Lazarus plundered its dread abode himself, dies and there is something deeply profound here that the author of life should die and as we're about to see should die for us and these few verses are loaded with important things we've seen the cry there's also this curtain of the temple which I'm sure we may know separated the holy of holies representing where God was to be found from where people were it it spelled exclusion it was no entry and at the moment of Jesus' death it is ripped from top to bottom I'm sure if they were in the temple at that moment they could have seen in beyond the curtain to something which one man once a year would see the holy of holies the Ark of the Covenant there. To ripping by God. As God's Son paid the price in his own death to reconcile us to God, to give us access to God. And at the moment of his death, there is this wonderful visual aid in the temple in Jerusalem, spelling out to every man and woman and child, no entry, you're separated from God. That barrier has gone for good in both senses of the word good. Ripped up. 
or probably better, ripped down forever. Well, we've heard the cry, we've seen the curtain, and then there are these corpses backing, uh, coming back to life. There's an earthquake. Look at verse 51. There's an earthquake. In the Old Testament, earthquakes mean God is in business. He's taking action here. And there's an earthquake as Jesus died. And again, God is mightily working. Tombs are broken open. We see in verse 52, uh, the, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Yet no one saw them until the third day, until Easter Sunday, when, verse 53 there, um, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. But their resurrection happened at the moment of Jesus' death. Matthew's the only gospel to record that. What's going on? It is a glorious anticipation that one day all of God's people will be raised to be with Jesus. It's a prefiguring of the final resurrection of all God's people to glory. This guy called John Wenham wrote this once. On the one hand, Jesus' sacrificial death blots out sin defeats the power of evil and death and and opens up access to God. On the other, Jesus' victorious resurrection and vindication promised the final resurrection for those who die in him. So we see the cry and the curtain. We see these corpses coming back to life. And then there's a centurion, but it's not just the centurion. We look at verse 54. Those were with him as well were guarding Jesus, and they all saw the earthquake, they all saw what had happened, they were all terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Together saying that, at the moment of his death, we've just seen God die. And saying, surely he was the Son of God. And that's what we remember today. The Son of God. None other than the Son of God dying for the sin of the world, giving his life for you and for me. It's a wonderful day. He is a wonderful saviour. And witness. So we see here in verses 55 and 56, by a whole group of women. It's probably too dangerous for men to be there, but the women wouldn't be seen as potential co-conspirators. And they were there as Jesus died. And Mary and Mary were there when Jesus was buried. And that's makes us to makes us look forward to Sunday, doesn't it? And our great and glorious celebration, the resurrection of the Son of God. Of today and for us, we remember Jesus' self sacrifice for us and for all eternity.